Hello, everyone. This is Food Talk executive producer Rob Perra. Danny will be conducting interviews here every day, talking with experts on food and agriculture, and discussing topics like the impact of COVID-19 on the food system, unsung food heroes, how climate change continues to be a threat to agriculture, and other pressing social and environmental challenges that impact farmers, eaters, and the economy. Today on Food Talk, Danny chats with the director of Soul Food Monologues, LaDonna Sanders-Redmond, about co-op's role in the food system. Sanders-Redmond also discusses ways that art can address injustice faced in the food system. Enjoy the show. Before I introduce our guest today, uh, I want to give a shout out to my co-founder, Bernard Pollock. Um, He, uh, with um, some incredible uh, and really talented people, has created um, an off-Broadway musical called Garjana that will focus on creating resilience to climate change and, you know, how to solve issues around food insecurity and and inequality in the food system. Uh, It was supposed to open this summer at La Mama Theater in in New York City, which is a nonprofit theater company doing amazing things. Um, Obviously, because of COVID-19, that has been pushed. It it will come out next year. I'm knocking on wood to make sure that that happens. Um, But it's such an interesting way to um, integrate what we do with, you know, talking about food and agriculture with the arts and, and, uh, with the arts community. And we have amazing people who are working with us on it, including Rocky Dewuni, who's a NAMI, a, a Grammy nominated, um, Afrobeats, uh, star. He's a UNEP ambassador, United Nations Environment Program ambassador. Uh, we have Whitney Mosery, who has been working with Cirque du Soleil. So we have this whole crew of talented people who are really committed to telling these stories around our, our food system. And I think there's n- really no more important time than now to be using uh, the arts as a way to, to tell stories, as a way to heal, as a way to express rage and grief and sadness and joy and hope. So um, I'm looking forward to next year when Bernie's vision can can come to fruition and we can get this off the ground. And I know our guest today, uh, LaDonna Sanders Redmond, this is uh, something that's, you know, the, the use of arts to to tell stories and around food and around inequality and around diversity in the food system is something that she cares a lot about. Um, LaDonna is the diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant at Columinate and the curator, director, and co-producer of Soul Food Monologues. She's uh, somebody I've admired really my whole career because she's a longtime food justice advocate. She has successfully worked to get Chicago public schools to change policies on junk food, launched urban agriculture projects, started a community grocery store, and worked on federal farm policy to expand access to healthy food in low-income and underserved communities. She was also the leader of the food justice program at the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy uh, based in Minnesota, and they're longtime partners uh, of, of Food Tank and have been very good to me over the years. LaDonna, thank you so much for being here. You're you're one of my sheroes and heroines in this movement, and it's a pleasure to see you. So I, I want to start off with this situation that we're in now. COVID-19 has exposed so many cracks and so many sorts of... Um, you know, pieces of the food system that are broken. And I'm wondering, you know, what you're seeing in terms of, of how it's, it's exposing the lack of 
you know, the lack of equality in our food system right now and maybe talk a little bit about that. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I um, I really think that what's going on right now is is perhaps uh, on one hand exposing people um, who weren't quite sure what the inequities were, um, but also confirming those who live in the gap of the inequity um, that they indeed are not crazy that <laughs> <laughs> that there is something wrong here, and so I, I think. COVID-19 is a um, certainly a tragedy, so many people losing their lives, um, but also an opportunity, uh, opportunity mm-hmm. for us to really clearly see that inequity doesn't just happen to people, it's systemic. Right. It's not, you know, um, uh, one time, it's episodic. Um, there are multiple and multiple episodes of trauma that has come through our food system, whether we're talking about land or access to food, certainly poverty um, is traumatic or has been traumatic, traumatized, if you will. Um, and the result is that communities can't get what they need. So now we know that not only can people, not only are people hungry, um, people don't have jobs and people can't pay their bills, therefore they won't have housing. So right. all these multiple food, housing, shelter conversations, you know, are now on the plate for almost every person um, around the world. Well, and people who didn't experience the things that, you know, many communities that who are underserved or communities of color are now in those situations where they don't know where their next meal is coming from. They don't know how to pay the rent. They were living, you know, what they thought were, you know, sort of stable lives. And this is upended everything. So I, I do think in some ways it, it levels the playing field. I mean, I, I don't want to be crass, but it does sort of expose us all to, you know, this is how many, many millions of people in the United States were living and we just didn't see them and we chose not to see them. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think the, the um, ideology of white supremacy, where we have the standard of white body supremacy, where we look at white people or people in white bodies and we think that everything is fine and everything is wonderful. And I think it's oppressive, certainly in terms of its push on people in black and brown bodies, but it's also oppressive to people in white bodies because now you know that you have lived a lie. You know that you are just like everyone else. And I think what that is what is terrifying um, to so many people is that they're now finding out that the the idea of skin supremacy or the idea of exclusion or the idea that it is someone's fault that right. they are unable to feed themselves or they have to work two jobs is just totally blown out of the water. Right. But again, that's, I mean, despite the tragedy and the suffering that's going on, it's such a, a, it's an amazing opportunity for those of us who work on food and agriculture or who work in the arts or, you know, just human beings in general to really understand other humans in a way that we haven't before. And I know we're seeing a lot of, of increases in violence in certain communities and, you know, certainly, um, when white people storm, you know, state government with with guns and demand, you know, to be for their state to be open. If if people of color did that, it would, you know, there, there'd be a be a very different situation. We have history to look back upon, you know, 
um, not, we don't have to go that far back. I mean, we go to Kent State, we can go to the right. civil rights movement where dogs and water hoses um, and guns were turned on children uh, because sure. they were marching for their freedom. So historically, we know that black and brown bodies, that would not be tolerated um, at all. When you look at the Black Panther Party and the guns um, that they brought to the California Capitol because they too had the right to bear arms, brought the wrath of the federal government uh, on them. So mm -mm, no, we're not, we're not treated the same yet. There's only one food system and people like right. to think they're finding out that it's not two, it's not three, it's not four, it's one. Right. So when it runs out of toilet paper, nobody <laughs> can get it. When it runs right, out right. of chicken, nobody can get the chicken, except for the smart people. Now you and I know where to get chicken. <laughs> we, know, we know chicken farmers. <laughs> so now that's the, that's the realization that there is yeah. some, there's some agency in our food system, but what people are not able to do is access that agency because they don't have the information. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And getting that information out there. I mean, I know that's so critical to the work that you do and creating awareness. Um, I, I'm wondering, you know, you, you use the word trauma and I, you know, as, as a white person, I don't think that people like me understand this sort of how, you know, a history of colonialism and a history of racism creates this sort of generational trauma. And I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about what that, what that really looks like and what that means and how, what that means and how, you know, people of color and, and people in low-income communities, how it makes them sort of view the world because they have this sort of embedded, you know, trauma because of how their grandparents were treated. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I think that's an important an important story. But in the work that I do, I don't start quite right there. I'm gonna get there, but I wanna I wanna do a little bit of a pre sure. because of I think where we are right now in this age of awareness, where we are now seeing that these multiple systems are not colorblind. You know, they they get everybody. They after everybody. So they have been historically targeted and built on people who are in black, brown, or indigenous bodies. We know that, and I'm gonna talk about that. But what I wanna bring up in this conversation is the trauma on the white body. Because see, white people have a tendency to think that, well, if we help people of color heal their trauma, everything will be okay. That's not true. You have trauma. So what is it like to heal from the colonistic idea Mm. that you should be you should be you should be healthy on top of someone else's inequity. What makes you think that you should be able to take a gun, a rifle, a semi an automatic weapon? Because some of those some of those weapons in Michigan, I can see they have been adapted. Right. You know, what makes you think that? And what will it take for you to understand that your well being it's not, it does not have to be and should not be at the expense of someone else's well-being. So getting um, people in white bodies to look at their own trauma, you know, the historical nature of exploitation, the um, implicit bias around mm-hmm. difference, 
any difference because again in 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 this in this idea this ideology of white supremacy there's the ideology that everyone has to be the same and to notice anything that is different whether it's skin color or physical ability or anything else is to be the other so this othering has to be um reckoned with but the history of white supremacy and its exploitive tactics back from the dark ages people in white bodies have to have to reckon with that yeah the united states whose ancestry is tied to immigration in the early 1800s who um grew up on farms have to reckon with the notion that that land belongs to indigenous people and what happened to the people who were there before your family came. They have right. to reckon with that. There isn't um, a place in our society for the reckoning to happen. So right. we keep going into this place of, well, if we could just fix black and brown people, and I'm not saying that's what you were saying, so don't take it. No, no, of course not, <laughs> of course not. Okay, I just wanted to make sure. So no, no. place of, Hey, if we just understand what's going on over there, we can get it. And I and that has been We need to understand what's happening here. Yes. We need to understand what's happening here. Because as a black and brown person, I believe that my freedom, my liberation is not dependent on white supremacy going away. I'm gonna be liberated. I'm gonna get my liberation. So I'm not that worried about it. I deal with it as it comes. You know what I'm saying? And I'm not dismissing systemic oppression. I'm not dismissing the fact that epigenetically I have been impacted by historical trauma. It doesn't, in other words, it doesn't matter how much money I make. Uh, well, I'm past childbearing age, but when I was bearing children, I was more likely to die in childbirth, no matter how much education I had, no matter how much money I made. My daughter is still that person, a black woman who is more likely to die in childbirth than any other person. So I have been impacted genetically by the stress of um, of systemic yeah. oppression. Yeah, and I mean, we're seeing this with COVID-19 that, that African-American populations are so much more affected be, and, and die, dying in much greater numbers. And yet you, you don't see newscasters talk. I mean, I think that should be, the opening, you know, line of every newscast that black people are dying and we're not doing anything, you know, the world's not doing anything to help them. Right. And I think that's the part of the organizing that really inspired me to make, uh, I made this post. I think you responded to it because I'm like, I got to do a podcast because, you know, (laughs) we have to talk about food plus justice and democracy because, I think we have to get information out to our people. And sometimes you have to have a credible messenger. So there's some people in some places and some big houses in the United States that are not credible messengers for black and brown people. So they're not really going to listen to anything that they have to say. But how do we create a community of care that gets out information that doesn't tell people what to do. You're grown, an adult, you do whatever you need to do, but gives you enough information to make the right decision for you. Yeah, I mean, everyone needs those resources, no matter 
where you come from. But, but like, I like that, you know, you're not the first person on one of these live casts to use that term community of care. And it's, you know, really the first, I've heard it, you know, in the past, like BC before COVID, but now I'm hearing it so much more and like economies of care and that kind of thing. I think it's, it's such a powerful way to look at this. Right. I think we, we got caught up with the sharing, the sharing economy and it made a lot of people rich. Um, and the people who wasn't who weren't sharing were the people who were working. So right. now we're understanding that you know sharing isn't necessarily the precursor to well-being. We have to be in community um, in order to really have this caring going on. And so when we still have these hierarchical systems where you know the person who is at most risk makes the least money, and the person right. who you know, is not really burdened with the idea that they have to do the work makes the most money. And I'm not saying that the person with the idea should not make money, but there has to be some parity between the two, some equity. Right. Not everything can be on the backs of other people that you have to create a better system. And if this didn't, um, this didn't just really blow that out of the water, we have a system that is built on the backs of people who are poor, who are black, who are brown, who are indigenous. That that's who's going to work every day. Right. Right. That's who's in Target. That's who's mm -hmm. the cashier. Even in our, our co-ops, those are the people, the young people, the moms, the single moms, the dads and who are raising families, the queer people who have to work. Right. Those are the people that our system is um <laughs> those are the people who are being forced to go back to work. I mean, maybe people want to go back to work. I shouldn't um, judge that. But those are the people oh. who are standing behind counters at department stores right. in malls um, for hours and hours. They're going back to work with no health benefits. Um, right. And no hazard pay. No hazard pay, no protective gear, but they're being told, you know, go back to work. You know, we're, we have to we have to start up this economy. And this also is a point that I want to make. Starting up the economy requires them to go to work. It doesn't require people who are in big offices to go to work. Right. It, it requires people to go to the gas station and be the cashier. It requires you know, people who are in restaurants and cooks and people who are cleaning homes. It requires people who we would rather not see and rather not speak to, to go back to work. And sure. that is, that's what our economy is built on. It's not, it's not built on the Bill Gates of the world or um, any of the wealthy folks of the world. It's built on the backs of the anonymous, poor, black, brown, and indigenous and Asian people. Absolutely. And what I've, you know, been talking a lot about, or, you know, because I'm hearing from people like you is we have to make, these folks who were invisible, you know, we, we made them invisible. We chose not to, to look at them. They have to be more visible then they have to be more respected and honored and paid well. And, and, you know, because they're forced to go back to work because they have to pay their bills because we've created, you know, the structure of, of capitalism that, you know, if they don't pay the rent, they're kicked out even during a pandemic. So I think, you know, creating, um, more visibility, uh, like, you know, through um, what the organization One Fair Wage has done, making sure that these folks are up, you know, uplifted, that they're seen, 
um, and, and understood is, is more critical than ever. Yeah, I think that's important. I think um, also being a be- employers have to be better employers. Um, right. One of the things about um, working in the co-op space is that there's thousands, if not millions of jobs in cooperatives. Cooperatives have the capacity to be better employee, employer. Yeah. And right. so we also have to have workplaces that are, um, are built on this idea of worker rights. So mm-hmm. we can't ignore, you know, the fact that there's some responsibility in the within the for-profit economy. And I appreciate all of the nonprofits that are out doing the work, but I don't I have a deep distrust of foundations as, as I have experienced. <laughs> You've expressed that over the in years. In your mind. You know, and so they want to work on the next the next sexy thing. Right. And I think that's fine. And and I also think that the places that people are going to work, the restaurants, the grocery stores, the department stores, the small businesses right. are the places where the most help is needed and the most money should go. And those people that are employing folks have an obligation to be the best employer that they can be. Absolutely. I, I want to step back a little bit and then get back to how we we started this podcast, this intersection of food and, and the arts. And I know that's something that you were, you really created with soul food monologues and just, you know, making people aware through storytelling about, you know, these different issues. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, sure. Um, so I um, participated in a, um, oh, a workshop at Bioneers. I know you know the folks at Bioneers yeah. and, and, uh, and Kenny. And, um, I met a woman named Tanya Taylor Rubenstein, who um, has a project called Story Healing, fantastic, you know, master teacher. And um, we struck up a great friendship. I went to study with her um, to do my own one woman show. And um, in the process of doing that, I got very involved in, well, how do you help other people tell their stories? So um, from that Story Healing facilitation workshop, I developed so, soul food monologues. And the reason I uh, I use soul as an acronym is sustainable, organic, urban, and local. And I use that because I wanted people to be able to tell their stories much like I had been telling mine for many years. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I was getting a little bored with it. I know people like the story and I, I enjoy telling it to some degree, but sure. I wanted to you know, I was evolving as an activist, as an organizer, as a woman. Um, I was changing and getting older, and I wanted to be able to tell different stories. So I created the um, Soul Food Monologues and the workshop process that helps people um, go into workshop and basically write their own monologue. So we put them on stage, beautiful production. Um, put them on stage, you get about maybe a six or seven minute monologue, which is pretty long when the person sure. is there at that mic. And right. uh, it's been fantastic. It's been so successful. We've done it. I've done it so many times uh, with communities, done it all over the state of Minnesota at the University of Minnesota a couple years ago uh, with students. Um, I've done it with um, women who are uh, farmers. Um, I've done it uh, in just so many different ways. So, so great. It was really important to me. Also, we talked about this just a little bit. 
I was like, we're the only movement that doesn't have a movement culture. I mean, and that's why I'm like, I don't know that we have a food movement. I think we have a food click. I think we can, <laughs> we talk, we eat, we, you know, we hang out and then poof. Sure. That, you know, we might do some stuff in between. And I'm not saying that the work is, uh, you know, the work that people do when they come together is irrelevant. I am suggesting that there's more to movement than just conferences and talking. What's really important is a culture. And so right. the culture include music. Um, it includes theater. Um, there definitely are writers who are, who are writing, but not necessarily writing from the standpoint of storytelling uh, they're writing and like sort of like a finger wagging kind of thing. Yeah, the bad, mm -hmm. uh, you preachy, know, preachy, yeah, yeah, kind of preachy. But to be able to tell sto the story of food from the personal standpoint, right, revolutionary and also healing. And that was also what I wanted people to be able to do to tell their stories, to be able to witness um, themselves and be witnessed by an audience. Um, in their story is is cathartic. Absolutely. And I love all of that healing, witnessing, just being able to to share, you know, your your own viewpoint uh, in, in a really constructive way. You had the greatest comment come up and it wasn't a question, but it was like, keep on keeping on uh, LaDonna and deepest respect. So it was like, I, I, if Bernie wants to put it up again, that would be great. Um, you know, I'm there it is. Diane Dodge. <laughs> How are you? I'll definitely do that. That's also the one who's keeping, keep on keeping on. You <laughs> That's awesome. Um, you know, I've been following your work for so long and I know you gave this great uh, TEDx uh, Manhattan talk in 2013 where you, you said uh, that the, 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 the term food desert is a cute term. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that because we've seen that that term evolve you know we've heard about food swamps and and you know other other terms to use it or food apartheid i'm wondering you know uh what if you can just explain a little bit more about what what you meant at that time and what it means now yeah so you know um for me the term food desert is um a reminder of white supremacy in academia. Mm. So the term came up, a lot of people don't really know this story, so I'm going to tell you just a little bit of it. Sure. Um, the term came up with a researcher on the Chicago Food Systems Collaborative Project that I worked on. I was the program manager for it, a project uh -huh. manager for it. And um, this person had been invited to or asked to come to our table and invited and we invited a number of researchers to come to our table but and we shared our data um the organizers and activists that were at the table shared data um the only issue with the sharing of data was that names of the community had to be included if you published documents or published anything mm -hmm. make a long story short I get a phone call that's telling me that, you know, they've decided that our community is called a food desert and that they're, you know, going to do this release. And um, I'm welcome to come to it, but I can't see it before, you know, before the media 
gets a hold to it. And okay. I this person that I would be in every piece of media that they ever got about the food desert. And I have been adamantly opposed to the usage of the term, mainly because it did not come from the community. It came from the death mm -hmm. of a researcher who was unaffiliated with a university. And it really is symptomatic of the way that we even look at our food system, because the solutions that the food desert puts out for us is Walmart and Super Value, Cub right. and major chain grocery stores, Walmart, Michelle Obama had those three players at the White House saying that they were going to solve the food desert. And here we are 10 years later, 15 years later from the, for the term, 10 years later, I don't think there's one community that's better off because they call themselves a food desert. Now that's just me. Yeah. The second or maybe even third or fourth point that I will make um, is that the food desert ideology is not a liberation ideology. It does not take into account all of the wonderful work that was going on in Chicago, not just at my table, but all over the Chicago, all over Chicago. Uh, Will sure. and Olga Allen were in Chicago and they were beginning um, to do their growing power work. They had already started in Milwaukee, but they had right. expanded to Chicago. Um, I was converting vacant lots to urban farm sites and working with Chicago public schools. And there were people who were doing farmer's markets and there were on and on and on. There was agency all over the city of Chicago right. around getting food in our neighborhoods. Yet this person decided that, and this person and a bank <laughs> decided that the term food desert was the way to solve all their pro our problems because we didn't need to do that. I'll say one more thing. So I had, um, you know, in all of this, I have, as you know, been an outspoken opponent of that term. And I, I get people together every time they say it to me. Right. And I refuse to waver on it. You know, I that's just a no-go with me. I am not right. interested in, in advocating that. The thing that is interesting around um, around the, the food desert, and I, um, I think I lost my point that I was going to make, but anyway, it'll come back to me. But absolutely, yeah. So no, I, I mean, I if I, I if I can just interject for a second, I, I think it it makes communities who have been you know dealing with problems and helping themselves look like victims when they are not victims. And you know, deserts implies that there's nothing there, and there's so much rich culture. And you know, sense of community, and 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 so many of these places that are termed food deserts, and so I think you know that's something that bothers me about it. And you know, you taught me not to use that term anymore because it was something that you know a lot of us who who write and, and work on these issues just sort of you know used blindly because we thought that was the term to use, and and it's you know something I drill into our interns and our staff now that it's not a term that you know creates any positivity. It's not a term that we should be focusing on. We, there, there are other ways to describe these places and uh, that are more constructive. Right. Uh, you really, I think that was what I was going to say. There, it, it robs communities of agency. Right. You know, the work that we were doing um, was imperfect, but hell, so is the food system. It wasn't, it wasn't perfect. Right. So I don't know that we were ever going for perfection, but we certainly were going for agency and the right to grow our own food and the right to determine what our communities looked like and what was coming out of our, 
out of our communities. And also to push back on this notion, which is what you just said, there wasn't anything there that right. so call it a desert. And people actually live in the desert. So I've visited indigenous people who live in the desert. So it's not that there's nothing over there either. So even right. the use of the ecological term is inappropriate and and um, dismissive of a part of the ecosystem that really is vitally important. So find that when people use that term or want to use that term on, and not realize that what they're saying is really undermining the work that they want to do. So you want to, you know, and I know we have to say all kinds of things in uh, proposals and things like that. <laughs> But I wonder if the same thing, you know, enough of the a food desert. Oh, I know what I was going to say. So I had a funder one time tell me, well, you know, I wanted to build a grocery store in my neighborhood. Uh, and that's what my neighborhood wanted. And we had been working for it. And I had a funder tell me, I think he thought it was the most ridiculous idea ever. Like, why do you want to build a grocery store? I mean, it just makes no sense. I mean, there are other people who know how to do it. So right. you know, it's like you want to go to the moon. I mean, why do you? Why would you build a rocket ship? Why don't you go to Nassau? And I was like, oh, my God, it's so amazing that you would liken going to the grocery store with going to the moon because that's what the hell it is. And it shouldn't be like going <laughs> to the moon. It should be as easy and as effortless as everybody else's visit to right. the grocery store or to get food. It should be a no-brainer, but it's right. not. It's not rocket science to get food. It should not be rocket science. Wow. But that's the mentality that people have when they look at these other communities and say, you don't have the right to choose. You don't have the right to create. And that is what the food desert phrase yeah. means. You don't have the right to pick your food system. You don't have a right to participate in the right. of your choice. Well, I mean, there's so much of this, whether we're talking about the United States or we're talking about the global South where, you know, well-meaning, they are well-meaning, you know, uh, development workers or, you know, aid agencies go in and they tell communities, here's what you need and we're going to figure out a way to give it to you. Instead of asking those communities, what do you want? What do you, what do you want from your community? How can we help you get there? And it's, you know, you need this paradigm shift in how we, we think of sort of development whether it's community development or international development. Um, and well, and that, I, mean, I... You know, the other piece of it, stop stealing from them. I mean, you, know, you, look at, <laughs> you look at Africa. Africa has the youngest population in the world. The continent has the, right. most young, the youngest people in, all over the world. And their young people are leaving the continent because they are being told and forced to leave because they don't have any access to the resources. Yet, we extract so much of our lives out of Africa to have our cell phones and to mm -hmm. have our fabrics and our materials and our oil and all of that. If we could just stop stealing from folks, if we could pay folks well, pay them for their labor, not charge them for being poor. You get it's like a certain right. type of poverty tax. To be poor, you got to pay more for everything. You got you get so expensive. To yeah. the poor neighborhood, you get you know you have more policing, so you're more likely to get shot by the police in a poor neighborhood, yeah. particularly in a poor black or brown neighborhood. But actually, you could be black or brown anywhere and get shot. So I'm sorry to you don't have to bust my bubble with that one. But my point is that if we could get to a system 
where people could just get the money that they need to live the lives that they want, then we could all be better off and we wouldn't have to serve them because people right. have agency and they could do it for themselves. Right, right. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, before we end, I want to make sure that people know where to get in touch with you. They can go to Calluminate.coop. Um, Any other websites you want to give out? Yeah, you can go to my website, LaDonnaSandersRedmond.com. Um, and on there, you'll find ways to connect with me. I'm going to be launching um, a podcast. It'll be ready um, June 1st. Um, Exciting. And- uh, food plus justice equals democracy is the name of the title. I love it. I love it. We will have all that information on our website too, so that people can get it easily. So when they go to foodtank.com, when this um, comes out on our podcast tomorrow, they can get all that information. Um, you had you had another great uh, comment. Madam Soybean says truth exclamation point. So people love you, LaDonna. Um, my, my final question right now is, you know, we, we, you and I have been talking about how COVID-19 may be this great opportunity for changing the food system. And, and I, I do hope it is. Who is making you feel hopeful about that right now? Is there a particular person who inspires you? Wow. All of the people, I mean, the farmers, the um, small family farmers, the CSA producers are right. so inspiring because I know where to get, I know where to get my chickens. I know... <laughs> I know where to get lucky. Right. I know where to get the food that I want because I've been talking to these people for years and they are ready. Our yeah. local food system is our is our best hope. I am fortunate that I am able to shelter at home and talk to people all over the world. So I am right. inspiration from like parts of the world that I just have never gotten a chance to visit um, by getting online. And um, participating in all kinds of classes and learning about all kinds of different approaches to the food system, particularly um, around trauma and healing. So I'm trying mm-hmm. to think of uh, folks, but my usual folks, my go-to folks are um, folks like Dr. Monica White, dear friend and author of uh, Freedom Farmer books. I mean, she, mm-hmm. her work and the students that she's um, lifting up um, give me tremendous hope. Um, of course, you know, I, I just got through listening to a podcast with Angela Davis and Nikki Giovanni on Girl Trek. Oh my wow. God. I mean, Girl Trek is an organization that gives me a lot of hope to get out and walk and take care of my own health in terms of my, my wellness and sure. all of the people who are making masks and um, have this little cottage industry of creativity and making those masks. Um, so many people, and I, I don't want to, you know, I mean, I can name, you know, I'm thinking of this, um, and I'm totally blanking on the Kima's last name, and I'm going to probably come with me. This is age talking, right? Um, but no, no. Is, uh, is an attorney and a civil rights um, um, leader and um, doing fantastic work, getting out every week with another um, person, uh, Chantal, and handing out sanitizers and masks to people in North Minneapolis who may not have access to these things. So those little acts of courage to stand up and say- Bravery, for sure. And not just to say it's wrong, but to get out and make something happen. So- I, I am getting, I'm getting, getting my, my hope 
from so many of these people who are just standing up and saying, hey, we can talk about what's wrong, but we're going to do something about what's wrong. I love it. I love it. I'm so glad you could be with me today. Thanks again for responding to my random Facebook message. Um, A reminder... A reminder that this episode will also be on our podcast, Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. And please join me on our next episode when I'll be talking to Rob LaRue, the president of the National Farmers Union. Thank you, LaDonna. Please stay well. I will. You do the same. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share the podcast. Make sure to return to foodtank.com every day for original reporting and analysis on the most pressing issues impacting our food system.